salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. He is our one redeemer. What God did in his demand and none to him could render. Cause wrath and war on every hand, for man no life offender. Our flesh has not those pure desires, the Spirit of the Lord requires. It was a false misleading dream that God is law had given that sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. The Lord is but a From sin our flesh could not abstain, sin held its sway unceasing. The task was useless and in vain, our guilt was ever increasing. None removed sin's poison dart, or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. Yet as the law must be fulfilled, or we must die despairing, Christ came and has God's anger still. I you promised to deliver your holy church from all her enemies. Grant us relief from persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel. And do not let the enemies of your church triumph over us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The hymn, Salvation Unto Us, has come. You may have caught this, especially if you've been um, faithful with the congregation at prayer that this fall, the Sunday after a hymn is introduced in the congregation at prayer, for example, this last week, Father Most Holy, it appears somewhere in the divine service the following Sunday. So we have uh, preschoolers or kindergartners in the academy, for example, that may not be reading quite yet, but they're learning that hymn by heart, 
in school and hopefully in your home, and then they come and we sing it this morning. It was the hymn of invocation. I know that. And so we're singing those hymns that, now this one introduced today, uh, we're singing them in the Sunday following. The hymns of the week in the congregation at prayer are intended especially to be um, the best of Lutheran hymnody. They are intended to be uh, foundational in that sense. Hymns that should be learned by heart. Uh, hymns that are concrete in uh, the language, that speak in biblical terms, as opposed to flowery, esoteric, nebulous, subjective terms. So this is one of them. This hymn by Paul Spiritus, we had five verses today, uh, five more for next week. It's one of the great hymns of the Lutheran Reformation. The first five stanzas speak about the function of the law. And as we will continue our St. Peter option study today, the function of the law for us in the church is chiefly about bringing about repentance and faith in Christ. It is not chiefly about reforming society. Let me repeat that. When the church uses the law, it is chiefly about repentance and faith in Christ. It is not chiefly about reforming society. When the government makes law, it does so according to the government station to maintain order in society, to govern society through the force of law. That's not the function of the church's use of law. The church's use of law is to penetrate the heart, to call to repentance and faith in Christ. Now, where that happens, there's actually a more salutary benefit to the society when the heart is changed over against when simply the outward force of law is used. Okay, So it is not that Christians have no interest in the society at all, but we have a unique position in the world as church. No one else is going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ but the church. So if the church fails to do what the church is given to do, woe to us. The Lord's blessing and the blessing of the Spirit will not long remain because the church's task is to preach law and gospel, but for the sake of faith in Christ. That's why I've said, as we go through our St. Peter option study, we're going to relate everything to the person and work of Christ as we bear witness to him. This is a great hymn on the function of the law. What God did in his law demand, verse 2, and none to him could render, cause wrath and woe on every hand for man the vile offender. Our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit of the law requires, and lost is our condition. It was a false, misleading dream that God his law had given that sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. The law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature. So whenever we as Christians use the law, I'm going to give it to you, Jody, to coerce you into doing what I want you to do, and actually what I want him to do may be indeed quite right. But it's a misuse of the law in the church when the law is done and used that way. From sin our flesh could not abstain, sin held its sway unceasing. 
The task was useless and in vain. Our guilt was air increasing. None can remove sin's poison dart or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. So you notice stanzas 2, 3, and 4 articulate the function of the law to call to repentance, the inability of the law to bring about faith in Christ alone. It can only expose sin. These three stanzas also talk about the corruption of original sin from which we cannot free ourselves. So what are we going to do? Well, so far, two through through. Uh, four, two, three, and four, there's no gospel there yet. There's no comfort there yet. So I had to go on at least to verse five. Even though the comfort was announced, what the theme of the hymn, salvation unto us has come by God's free grace, that's what this hymn is about, even when it's talking about the law, the function of the law to lead us to the gospel. So verse five says, yet as the law must be fulfilled or we must die despairing, Christ came. And has God's anger stilled, our human nature sharing? He has for us those wonderful words, for us. For us he lived, for us he died, for us he rose from the dead. He has for us the law obeyed, and thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. So we'll sing the remaining verses uh, in the weeks, next week, as we look forward to the celebration of this very distinction of law and gospel Uh, on Reformation Sunday. In the congregation at prayer, uh, Psalm 129, the notes commemorating the Lord's deliverance of his people from oppression. And what I found so very interesting about that psalm, and it ties into the themes in the readings for this morning, the 20th Sunday after Trinity, is that in the Old Testament history, So much of the oppression she was enduring, she brought upon herself. During the period of the judges, for example. That entire period, they would be brought to repentance and renewed faith in the Lord. Then they'd go astray. And then the Lord would raise up the Midianites. And the Midianites would oppress them. Why? It was their own fault. It was their own sin that brought that about. Okay? And then Gideon was raised up, and he was a total weakling spiritually. He had no strength of faith. But the Lord used him to be a redeemer of God's people against the Midianites, even though they had been raised up as a form of judgment against the impenitence and unbelief. So as we look at to, uh, as we pray Psalm 129 for the week, you can think of that. And I also think about it in our own times. Don't think for a moment that the church is not being chastened by the Lord through the things that the church is suffering under at the hands of a culture that is filled with wickedness and unbelief and disorder. For churches for decades have failed to catechize and teach. So our own failure to catechize and teach has weakened the church and her members and not 
given us a clear voice and witness to the society and culture around us. It's interesting how during periods of the most intense persecution in the church's history is when not only she was renewed in catechesis, the study of God's word, but her witness to the world became the clearest. Okay? Whether it was in, in more recent times, the Soviet era, we heard about the valiant confession of Christians during that period, or in the ancient world. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? And by that I mean you'd think that the church would do better in thriving times and not so well in difficult times. But the opposite ends up being the case. Which then is, on the one hand, a call to humble repentance that we might renew our study of the gospel and the sacred scriptures. And on the other hand, know that God intends to work through the things that we suffer, even in the society and culture, for his good. So Psalm 129 gets at a lot of those things. Unfortunately, it's one of those psalms that was not in LW. So, um, too combative, I suppose. The verse for the week is Isaiah 7.14. Why? Because this week we go into the second article of the Creed. It's our first of two weeks on the second article, the person and work of the Son of God, our Savior. So, we have the promise of the virgin birth. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prayer that I used at the beginning of Bible class is a prayer on Psalm 129. The second article of the Creed, and there is an extended prayer on the second article on the backside. The narratives for the week. There's no school on Monday, but Monday is St. Luke, the evangelist who accompanied the Apostle Paul on a lot of his missionary journeys and who not only wrote the gospel according to St. Luke, but his second volume was the Acts of the Apostles, where Jesus' ministry continued in the ministry of the Apostles. So that is, um, those two readings for tomorrow are actually readings appointed for St. Luke the Evangelist. And then we will continue in our biblical narratives on the Old Testament uh, leading up to, we're now in the divided kingdom, leading up to the Babylonian captivity. So that's the congregation at prayer for the week. I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you're, if you're paying attention to the green outline of the basic themes that we'll be covering, um, we're on number two, beginning today. Encouragement for Christians dispersed in a world of darkness. And if you flip over the back side, you also have the baptismal doxology. Uh, can we pray that together here at the outset? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, 
for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Encouragement for Christians dispersed in a world of darkness. If one takes seriously the words of the Apostle Peter in this baptismal doxology, you get the impression that Christians lived in the first century with a greater degree of joy, hope, and optimism than we do in our age. And I think in so many ways that is true. Let me highlight one of the major differences between our age and the first century. In our age, there are ostensibly tens of millions of Christians throughout the entire world, on every continent. Well, I think there's got to be at least one or two Christians on Antarctica. But every continent of the, of the, of the world has Christians. In contrast to that, the first century, in 33 AD, when Jesus was crucified, there were only enough Christians to be in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. That's it. Well, there would have been believers scattered about still in Galilee and Judea who had come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah, but they had no pastors. They had no church buildings. They had no congregations. What a contrast, huh? Not only that, but a difference in our age versus their age. In their age, after 33 AD, Christianity was an unrecognized, and if you're not recognized, if you're unofficial, you are technically and legally an illegal religion in the empire. Now, there's places in our world today where Christianity is illegal. But in the first century, it had no legal standing whatsoever. None. So you had this small band of Christians, mostly in Palestine, which in the Roman times, that was the armpit of the empire in the view of Rome because of the Jews' presence there, and they were a continuous thorn in the side that's why for Pontius Pilate to be sent there, can't you send me anywhere else but Palestine? Because it was such a problem 
ruling over the Jews in that area. But think about that amazing difference. Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, says, go and make disciples of all nations. Are you kidding me? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Are you kidding me? That is an utterly impossible task in the face of a government that considered you illegitimate. And not only that, but legitimate religions, legitimate in terms of you know, having government sanction, legitimate religions hated you and wanted to destroy you. In the face of this, the Apostle Peter and Paul are encouraging hope, joy, confidence not in themselves, but in the word of the Lord. And that confidence this is why at the center of this baptismal doxology, if I were at, to ask you what is at the center of its strength, of this hope and of this song of praise, what would you say? There is one word, or you could have it as a part of a phrase, one thing that is the source of eternal optimism for the church, according to this baptismal doxology. What is it? Christ, mercy. You're not far off. Cherie? Um, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith. We're kept by the power of God through faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. St. Paul says on the resurrection of Christ from the dead, hang all of our theology. If Christ is not risen, you're dead and you're still in your sins. And there's no hope. But because he lives, the church will live. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Though she die, yet she lives. Okay? Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the incarnation, okay, the enfleshment of the gospel of his suffering and death for the forgiveness of sins. That's what, when they, it wasn't as if it was just something that happened apart from the cross. His resurrection from the dead is the proclamation concretely of that victory over death. You can't destroy me, Satan. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because the church is the body of Christ risen from the dead. That's it. Okay? And this is what you see then in the likes of Stephen, the first martyr. Okay? How he prays for his enemies. Don't hold this sin against them. He was confessing the blessed and certain hope of the resurrection. So, by the way, when we're talking about hope, we're not talking about I hope it's a nice day this afternoon so we can continue to do some of the work we were doing outside yesterday. It's not that kind of hope, wishful thinking hope. It's sure and certain confidence. Okay? That's the hope that we have in Christ because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the hope that enabled all of the holy martyrs before us to face their martyrdoms without fear. And it doesn't mean that the persecution and suffering they went through was pleasant. <laughs> Not at all. Nevertheless, 
Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death through persecution and martyrdom for our salvation. And therefore, when her church passes through that, we know that we're joined to him. And the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. See? So that's the background here. Now let's go into the text. The first two verses, which we haven't looked at, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. An apostle. Who knows what it means? Maybe I can have a young catechumen, somebody like Caleb here, recite what is an apostle or Alec. Where was Alec? He was, I saw, oh, there he is. What is an apostle? An apostle of Jesus Christ. It has a specific meaning. Chuck. One sent out by Christ. Good. One sent out on behalf of Christ. That's it. You're going to let an 85-year-old man show you up? <laughs> well, he did. Shame, you youngins. Okay. So he's been paying attention in Coffee Break Bible Study when I've given these, uh, these definitions because they're the biblical definition. Apostello is to be sent out. An apostle is one who is sent out on behalf of another. In this case, the apostles were chosen eyewitnesses of everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did. And what his death and resurrection, that's taken as one event. In his death, he atones for sin, and his resurrection proclaims the victory over sin, which is life from the dead. Okay? So... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The idea is when he speaks and when he preaches, when he writes, Jesus is speaking, Jesus is preaching, and Jesus is writing. It is addressed to the pilgrims. Now, you might have in your footnote uh, other synonyms like sojourners or, I like this, temporary residents. It doesn't have a very elegant sound to it. But it's nonetheless true, a temporary resident. That's what a sojourner is. I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. So we're on a pilgrimage, we're on a sojourn. Now, this is the beginning, right here, of where Peter is going to develop the understanding of the church today with the Old Testament church. Which is why the study of the Old Testament church is so important for us to encourage us as New Testament Christians. This is why I've said in Coffee Break Bible Study so many times, the members are getting tired of hearing it, don't think of Old Testament Israel or Judah primarily in nationalistic political terms, but think of her primarily in ecclesiastical or churchly terms, where the kings are actually bishops over the priests. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and it's from the Old Testament church, particularly the things under which she suffers, that we learn something about the New Testament church today. You follow that? In other words, going back to Psalm 129, which is our psalm for the week, you know, the Lord laid affliction on them, and so much of the affliction laid upon them was because of their own impenitence and disregard for the word of the Lord. But his purpose was not to destroy them, but to bring about a resurrection. A 
restoration of them, repentance and renewed faith. So he is going to develop throughout the book this theme of understanding the Old Testament pilgrimage of the people of God and applying it to the church today. There is, however, one major difference he makes in that comparison. This is throughout the entire epistle. He dwells on what God had called Israel to be and what he now calls us to be. In the Old Testament, he called Israel to be unique. She often forgot about that and accommodated the ways of the culture around here. Okay, but she call, he called her to be unique, to worship in peculiar and odd ways, to dare to be whom God had called her to be. That's what Peter emphasizes then for the church. Peter doesn't emphasize how they fell on their faces time and time again. And I think there's a very profound reason why he doesn't do that. Can you think of the reason? Let me explain this again. In the Old Testament, you know, they fell on their face repeatedly. When Peter compares the New Testament church to the Old Testament church, in the New Testament church's pilgrimage, sojourning, temporary residency in this world, what he focuses on is what she was called to be in the Old Testament, and now what she's called to be in the New Testament. He does not focus upon all of the negative examples of her impenitence and failures and unbelief and spiritual falling on her face. So my question is, can you discern why he doesn't do that? Cindy. Grace? So there was no grace in the Old Testament? So Peter's covering the Old Testament with his banner of love? With Christ's love. With Christ's love. Susan. Uh, that is part of it. The eyes of faith on Jesus rather than on ourselves. Julie. Okay, well, this, this is a true statement. Jesus himself fell on his face over and over again. Or Peter did, sorry. 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 I'm glad you're listening. Just okay. Peter fell on his face over and over. That's, that's true. There's one key thing yet you're not saying. Did, did yes, Wally? Um, express what the church is and not what it isn't. Yes, that's true. But the tradition of. And the tradition of. Okay. God said something about the Old Testament church. 
that he doesn't say about the New Testament church. The Old Testament church would come to an end, but not the New Testament church. And those of the Old Testament would be part of the New Testament. Okay? No longer shall they say, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The point that I'm making here, I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yet the Old Testament church, in her constructs, temple worship, the sacrifices, all of that would come to an end. Absolutely. But there's one sacrifice that avails forever to which those other sacrifices pointed. The sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. And the result his glorious resurrection from the dead, and he reigns by the power of an indestructible life that will never end. So we make, on the one hand, we make a lot of mistakes. We fall on our face a lot, like Peter did. But he promises the New Testament church shall endure. I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against me. God's judgment came against the Old Testament church as an institution in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. There will be no such destruction of the New Testament church, no matter how awful it becomes in this world. To uh, quote Dr. Kleinig in a different episode I heard yesterday on issues, that is good news. That is good news. Wally? Well, they, 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 were, they were weak uh, repeatedly throughout. The 400 years of the judges was no great shakes. And, uh, yeah, no, they didn't. That was one of the reasons for their sins. There must be some amber alert that's coming and everybody, yeah. Maybe a turn off your phone would be the best way to do it, or does it turn it on? So this is the point I want you to see. I don't want you to lose this point. And that is that the New Testament church has the promise of enduring forever. Okay? What a great comfort that is. To the pilgrims of the dispersion, so uh, dispersed, that's picking up on the Old Testament idea of in both 722, the Assyrian captivity, the northern kingdom of Israel was dispersed. And then in 586, the Babylonian Empire dispersed the southern kingdom. And the strength of the pilgrims who were dispersed was in the remnant few of those dispersed members of Israel and Judah who continued to hold fast to the word. And we've mentioned people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, uh, and they are just uh, four people uh, among others. There were others that remained uh, faithful. When that faithful remnant was scattered then, what did they take with them around the empire? Pardon me? 
The, not the ark. No, no. The, the word of God. You hear? So on the one hand, the Assyrian captivity was absolutely God's judgment against the north. Uh, Wally, for accommodating the religions of all the countries around them. They did not do what you had asserted. The Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, that was God's judgment against the southern kingdom for failing to be faithful to the Lord. Again, that, didn't, that was God's judgment. Yet out of God's judgment, he brought about his good. The scattering of the dispersed faithful because of that judgment of God in those two captivities, meant that the word of God was carried away in those places of captivity as well. So here's an example about how, on the one hand, it was their fault for their unfaithfulness to the Lord. On the other hand, God worked his good through this suffering in that the word of the Lord was taken around the Mediterranean world. These Christians then, to whom Peter is addressing this Catholic epistle, it's a universal epistle, are among those descendants of the captivities, of the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. Let me repeat that. Those in the dispersion were among those who were descendants of the earlier captivities. Okay? On the day of Pentecost, Pentecost was a pilgrim feast, you know, one of the Old Testament pilgrim feasts, as was uh, Passover. They went back to Jerusalem and often gathered there to, to worship. What the apostles did in Jerusalem on Pentecost was say, this, this Messiah we've been waiting for, he has come. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who died and rose again from the dead. They went back home. So the word of the fulfillment of the messianic hope, there's our word again, hope, because those who had been scattered had this hope of a Messiah still, even though Israel was no more as a nation, Judah was no more as a nation, the remnant faithful would still have that hope that God would fulfill his promises. So those Jewish pilgrims that were there in Jerusalem for Pentecost and heard the apostolic preaching, how many were converted and baptized that first Pentecost? Does anyone remember? Uh, 3,000 that day, but then a little while later, another 5,000 because of Peter and John's preaching in the temple. And they went back into their regions where they lived prior to that. What are they taking back with them? The word of God and their confession of faith. So when the apostles, the likes of which you think of Paul's first missionary journey, Paul and who was his partner? Uh, well, he was with them a while, but he was not with them at the beginning. Uh, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, island of Cyprus, then Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And they took John Mark with them, Barnabas's cousin, but he got ch chicken-livered, so to speak, and when they got over onto the continent in Asia and the threat of disease, COVID-19 was present, so I can't do this. And he went back to Jerusalem. That made Paul irritated. I never want to take Mark again. But even out of that, God brought about his good. And, and as they're going to go on the second missionary journey, it's no longer Paul and Barnabas, if you remember, but Paul and 
Paul and Silas, and they revisited the churches in Asia Minor, and Barnabas said, fine, I'll take John Mark, and I'll go to Cyprus. That was his, okay? So you had this little, not, it's in, uh, Luke describes it in Acts, no little contention, you know? I'm not going to take Lesage. Are you kidding me? Oh, you know, okay. So anyway, but out of that, God brought about his good. Now, I'm, I'm leading to the point that we cannot undervalue the significance of the word of God as it is carried about in ways that we think don't even think of or think of as being totally insignificant. Those who had been in Jerusalem... 3,000 on Pentecost, a number of those were part of the 5,000, would be also added to it 5,000 later, 8,000, a good percentage of those, and others, they're going back to their place of origin, and they're carrying with it the word of God. So when the apostles, like Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary journey, Paul and Silas in the second missionary journey, along with Timothy and Titus and Luke, it is not as if nobody's heard nothing about Jesus of Nazareth. Because many of those people in the synagogues of the Jews in those territories did in fact hear of Jesus and the events that had gone on in Jerusalem. And the apostles preach on that. As, as well. So here's a, it's repeated over and over and over again how the word of God is preached and has free course and is preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people. And it's carried off into, the, into these uh, foreign lands. It doesn't remain in Jerusalem. And God accomplished that through persecution, and suffering. And in the case of the Old Testament dispersion, his own judgment against them. Okay? So this is important, then. The pilgrims include those Jews who believed in the Lord in the synagogues of the empire to which the apostles had preached. But it also includes, and Peter wants to to use this kind of metaphorically, not only literal dispersed Jews, but he wants to refer to the Gentile Christians also as sojourners and pilgrims. So there's a newly constituted Israel, if you will. The newly constituted Israel is made up of many who had been descendants by blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and had been scattered about. But it also includes those who were Greeks, Gentiles, who came to know and believe by the grace of God that Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of the Jews, was also the Messiah of all people. St. Paul says in Galatians, those who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. In the Old Testament, the emphasis upon blood connection to Abraham, but also faith, but also faith. Abraham believed and he was accounted righteous. But there was a heavy emphasis on on blood relation. In fact, if if you were a Gentile, Steve, and you wanted to be part of Israel in the Old Testament, and you were some Gentile, what did you have to become? 
You have to become circumcised and become a Jew. That's right. Now we become Jews, so to speak, or children of Abraham by faith in Christ, and we are baptized into Christ. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Okay? So you see how he expands the concept, and he does it throughout the entire epistle, epistle of sojourning pilgrims. Does it include some of those Old Testament believers who had been scattered and have now come to confess that Jesus is the Christ? Yes. But it also includes the Greeks, the Gentiles, who by faith and their baptism into Christ have been made one people. And Paul will talk about this in the book of Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all, one baptism, he says there. Okay? So what Peter does in his epistle is he stretches this out, this understanding of, of, of pilgrim people. And it includes, includes both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And then he says, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He is especially highlighting in that verse the areas where the first Gentile Christians um, came into the church during the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas. So here you've got a, an apostle who is writing to Christians who became Christians through the ministry of a different apostle. Because there's really only one apostolic doctrine. Okay. Paul referred to Peter, and Peter referred to Paul. And this area is what is especially present-day Turkey, what's sometimes referred to as Asia Minor. But it is a Catholic epistle, which means universal, for it is intended not merely for a church in one location, like Sussex or Corinth, but it is intended for the church at large. So the entire church is to see herself as a pilgrim people, Jew and Gentile alike. Now the challenges of the first century Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what were they? Well, I, I mentioned one at the outset. And, and I think, just pause to think about the miracle of the church's existence in the context of a handful of believers in Palestine, and they were Jews, the least regarded people of the empire, none of them actual citizens of the empire, just residents. You know, later on you hear about Paul, Saul of Tarsus, being a citizen. He was born into that citizenship because of his father. But the average Jew, certainly those from Nazareth and Galilee, they were not citizens of the Roman Empire. They didn't have the same rights. Do you feel like you have lost your rights as a Christian? Well, you haven't begun to lose your rights compared to their loss of, of rights. But this idea of a handful of believers, and out of that, Christ builds his church. An amazing thing. Okay. The ancient culture in which these Christians and, uh, and early church lived there are similarities and there are differences to our age. 
Among the similarities uh, is the paganism of the day, the, the worship of the host of heaven, the worship of Mother Earth. There was even, dare I say, in the emperor worship, which was a little less prevalent in Asia Minor, and it began, it was more prevalent the closer you got to Rome, if you went Macedonia, northern Greece, and so forth, where there was the worship of political rulers. Now, now thankfully, we don't have any worship of political rulers today. <laughs> Thankfully, none of us put our faith in who is elected to office. I'm being facetious, deliberately. For us as Christians, we pray for the civil authorities, but we don't pray to the civil authorities. We worship Christ. We don't worship the civil authorities. We go to baseball games, but we don't worship the Chicago Cubs or the Milwaukee Brewers. Okay? There is only one whom we worship as Christians. But I think there is such a tendency for us to think of the ancient world and look at it and say, you know, we have nothing in common with them at all. But the emperor worship of the ancient world is not, is not unrelated to placing all of our hope and confidence in political structures and political rulers and civil laws today. Okay. And here again, Daniel gives us a great example of the proper balance. He absolutely prayed for Nebuchadnezzar. He absolutely prayed for Darius. He absolutely served faithfully in the court of both of those kings. But he absolutely did not bend the knee to the worship of them. When his faith was called into question, he followed and was faithful to his Lord. Philip? But actually, Daniel does. He does. Daniel says, O king, live forever. And why would he say such a thing? He wants the king to live forever. So put that in the context of your disdain for political ruler X. You have no regard for political ruler X. You despise what political ruler X stands for. And yet Daniel wanted the salvation of political X, political figure X. How about that? Quite a radical thing. See how odd and peculiar being a Christian is? All right, so there are other similarities uh, to our day and age. Um, <laughs> sex is as old as the creation of man and woman, male and female. And the perversions of 
sexual order are as old as the fall into sin when Eve saw that the tree was beautiful and desirable and she ate of its fruit. So to be governed by passions and covetous appetites and desires was part of that ancient world. The bathhouses of Greece and so forth uh, were also part of the, um, you know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians in Ephesus. So a lot of the, it takes on different form today, but it's just the recasting of the same kinds of things. Um, there wasn't online pornography in those days because the computer and the internet didn't exist. But there absolutely were houses of prostitution and the opportunities to engage in the lusts and the appetites of the flesh. It's one of the major things that Paul had to deal with in Corinth where in dealing with the Corinthians there, uh, <laughs> they used the gospel of God's free grace and not by works as a license to indulge the appetites of their flesh. Dear friends, we're seeing the same thing in the church today across the board where in the name of free forgiveness for Jesus' sake, we embrace every kind of lifestyle imaginable. And to object to any kind of lifestyle imaginable is judgmental and an offense against the gospel. Well, that's patently false. However, people in the church are doing that sort of thing. And it's extremely destructive. So it's amazing to me how similar it's just dressed up a bit differently. But when you really uh, uh, dig into it, it ends up being the same kinds of things that we have uh, today. Okay. Uh, the problem of persecution in the ancient world and the deep-seated spiritual problems which are parallel to the challenges of the church today and Christians today. There is truly nothing new under the sun. And so while you don't have to necessarily know um, everything about every aberrant teaching today, this, what, you, what you are called to is to study the scriptures. And so looking at the book of Acts, looking at the epistles of the apostles, looking at the life of Jesus, looking at his preaching and his ministry, and to see those connections to the world in which we live today. So this follows along the theme, the more we are expert at uh, Christ, the more we are experts at the word of God, the more we will be able to cope with and rightly discern what we're experiencing in the world today and how to deal with it. Let me pause at this point under number A to see if you have any comments or questions. We've got about four minutes remaining. Anybody at all? Randy? No. Okay.
here of you know, aligning with this, aligning with that. The interesting question for the Christian is how do you, how do you navigate the, the interval between despair and hope in what it is that we live in on a day-to-day -day basis in politics and what it is that the world is doing, knowing full well there's always going to be imperfection, but nevertheless... Yeah, I think, uh, so his question, you know, how do you navigate between despair and hope uh, in the political uh, arena in the left-hand kingdom. And, and I think it, it's what, there's a, there's a danger that I, I know is going to come, uh, that we'll have to guard against in this St. Peter option study. And the danger is this, since I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Our hope is in Christ and not in the princes of this world. Since the church's main calling is not to reform society, therefore, here's the danger, I will disengage with society. But what Peter's going to hold up is faith in Christ, true faith in Christ, is always active in love for the benefit of the neighbor, particularly the neighbor that doesn't know Christ or believe in him, or particularly the nation and the society. So it is a denial of one's faith and hope in Christ not to continue to be engaged in the world for what is good out of love for the neighbor and out of love for Christ. Okay. So the danger, good, I'm not going to worry about it at all. I'm just going to, you know, totally disconnect from the world. Uh, Verla, you had your... Yeah, well, and it's true. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But Satan is a very clever guy. Did you know that? In fact, Satan is a brilliant theologian. Okay? He is, because he takes elements of truth that are absolute truth, then he twists them to his own end. Okay? So when we gather together the next time, we have, so keep this sheet. If you take it home with you, put it in your Bible, but bring your Bible back. How does Peter address the persecuted Christians of the first century? And, and I'm going to take you, uh, show a couple of passages throughout uh, 1 Peter, especially in addressing that question, even as we go through the six points that I've raised there uh, more specifically. Now, under this lesson, we have Psalm 43, and I'm going to uh, share Psalm 43 with you. It's only five verses long. I'm going to read it from the New King James. And imagine the, the church in the midst of persecution and suffering. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Look at in those first two verses, even these rhetorical questions at the end how it captures how we so often feel in the world today as Christians. 
Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them, your light and your truth, bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God my God. So God is my exceeding joy. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. So he's my joy, and he is my hope. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So if we're going to talk about the St. Peter option in contrast to the Benedict option, now the Benedict option, monasteries, they paid a lot of attention to praying the Psalms. I fear we pray the Psalms, but we don't pray the Psalms understanding that they speak precisely to our times. And then the hymn I suggested for this week, To God the Holy Spirit Let Us Pray, as it speaks about being on a pilgrimage through this uh, veil of tears. And picking up on your point from Hebrews, Verla, in this hymn, teach us Jesus Christ to know aright, that with hearts united we love each other, every stranger, sister, and brother. Lord, have mercy. Great hymn for the St. Peter option. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.